Hello and welcome to Be Natural, the podcast featuring stories from the badass women of the film and television industry. My name is Catherine Poole, but you can call me Kat, and today I'll be talking with the screenwriting guru, Pilar Alessandra. Pilar Alessandra is the director of the instructional writing program On The Page, host of the On The Page podcast, and a highly sought after speaker and script consultant who's trained writers at Disney, DreamWorks, ABC, the AFM, and around the world. She is also the author of The Coffee Break Screenwriter and The Coffee Break Screenwriter Breaks the Rules. Pilar's greatest accomplishment is the success of her students. They work on TV shows such as Homeland, The 100, Dear White People, Grey's Anatomy, Silicon Valley, and The Shy, and have sold feature films and pitches to Netflix, Sony, Warner Brothers, and other major studios. For more information about Pilar, her classes, consultations, books, and podcasts, go to www.onthepage.tv. <laughs> well, hello and welcome. Thank you again so much for being here. Thank you, Kat. Thanks so much for inviting me. <laughs> so first off, happy 20th anniversary to On The Page. Oh my God. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. It's weird. It's weird having a 20th anniversary of anything, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased and proud. Yes. I wish I had the bio that Alex Troxler had for you because it was uh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. Like three pages of gobbledygook about, about all the steps it took to get there. <laughs> so over the past, you know, 20 years, what's been your favorite part about teaching screenwriting? Oh gosh. I know that's a big question. <laughs> you know, I love it when it works. You know, when I, you know, I, I play with a writing tool, I have people execute the writing tool when I can see it in real time, as far as their work getting better. So, you know, we can do the before and after right in class and it feels like a magic trick. So I'm always very, very happy when it actually helps writers make progress. That's awesome. Yeah. I can definitely see like coffee break screenwriter. I have it. I have it right here. Thank it is a you. very valued resource. I was just <laughs> using it today. I'm outlining a project for a writing class I'm taking and I've been going through the steps and I kind of made myself a little template in my Google Docs so I can use it for different projects, but it's, it's so helpful. Hey, yes. <laughs> what I want to hear. Yes. Very effective. So if people aren't taking your classes and they decide to kind of consult with you, how is that process a little different? And what does that look like? So I no longer, no longer would you like write a script and then give it to me and I give you notes. There are plenty of people who do that. The way that I work now is I do it from, from scratch pretty much. So if you had an idea for your next project, we would break story on it, which means that we're figuring out what's the story you want to tell and what are your rough act breaks to get you there. Then we would put deadlines on the calendar and let's say it was for a feature film. It would be for pages one through 25, one through 50, one through 75 and the full draft. So you're constantly giving me page segments. I'm consulting on them and you're writing and rewriting till you get to the end. It's been a, a such a rewarding process. I love working this way. So that's, that's how I consult now. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's pretty major, basically helping them like birth their baby and then take, <laughs> take it all the way through. You know, you're there from the beginning. 
hopefully it's not as painful, but yeah. <laughs> hopefully. So I have a question that kind of just sprung up because of something that I was looking at yesterday. And so, as you know, I'm part of the organization Women in Motion at Emerson. And our meeting yesterday was talking about diversity and inclusion on set, but also throughout the entire process. And so our woman of the week was Latasha Gillespie, who is the global head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Amazon Studios and Prime Video. And mm -hmm. so she has a really nifty resource called like the playbook. And it has, you know, all the way from screenwriting all the way through to distribution and festivals, all these resources and these ways of avoiding bias and looking at this various aspects of production and how you can create the most inclusive production possible. And so we were talking to our members about it. And this question kind of came up because one of our members was in a writer's group where the first line of a script she read was completely racist. And she, she knew it was, and she said she walked out, she couldn't even stay in the meeting. And the question became between our members, how do you hold people accountable for things like that without putting them on the defensive and then making it harder for things to change. And so I was just wondering if you'd ever had that experience of dealing with a script that maybe had, you know, whether it's sexist, racist, homophobic elements. And, and how did you as, you know, a teacher and a consultant approach that and kind of navigate that situation? Well, I don't claim to be an expert because, you know, I'm also learning. Um, but when I recognize that something falls into those categories and the writer does not intend it. We talk about what their intention actually is. So I will suggest to them, I believe your intention is this. When you phrase it like this, the, what is coming out, what, what your meaning is coming out as something you didn't intend. And so usually that makes them understand, oh, I, I just worked against, you know, my own good intentions. And, and they will, they will understand that they'll see why they'll rephrase. And, uh, and sometimes, sometimes it is a question of perspective in general on how they see story and how they see characters. You know, there were a couple of writers where I had to sort of show them how male gazy their projects were <laughs> and, and they thought they were romanticizing women. And I was like, you're not really, you know, you're, you're creating an inauthentic version of a woman. And, uh, and we had to have a little discussion about it, but I'm, like I said, I'm learning as well. I'm learning in, you know, my own teaching over years has changed. My own perspectives have changed. And I think I'll just keep learning. Yeah, I agree. I think we've been talking about that in Women in Motion too, like, you know, looking at the intention of things. And, and I think this particular member, the first line was something around like Asians eating dogs was like the first line. Ugh, and, yeah. and she, yeah, it was just horrified. And I think even I, I'm in an internship right now and I'm reading lots of scripts and there are, there are so many, just the way they describe women and they're just like, oh, this is, you know, she's sexy and fun, but then it kind of ends there, you know, right. and, and how do we push people to go, to go beyond that and kind of investigate a little bit more. So you've been doing the podcast for, what is it? 14 years now? 14 years. God, but you know, honestly, when you start saying things like 14 and 20, it's like you feel a hundred, but yes, 14 years. I started it in 2007. Yeah, it's wisdom. You, you've, you know, you've come a very long way. You've earned your success. And so I just think of it as you're Thank just you. very, you have so much wisdom to offer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, that's what I tell people. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, yes. 
So how do you approach, you know, an episode you have a guest coming on and, you know, maybe you're not as familiar with them. How do you, how do you go about kind of formulating your questions and, and kind of getting in touch with what that writer's about? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of it now is sort of uh, rolling with where the conversation goes. I also know what the people listening are really want to hear about. They want to hear about process. They're writers themselves. So they want to know, you know, the writer's process for the page or in the writer's room. They want to know how that writer got the opportunities that they did. So it kind of helps me gear the interview. And everybody has such a completely different story to tell that it sounds like I'm asking different questions every time, but I'm not. (laughs) So my job is, is relatively easy. What's been cool over the years is if you do something long enough, you get to sort of see the fruits of your labor. So, so many of the writers that are on the show that are, that are talking about their first staffing gig, or they just sold something are my students, our former students and clients. So all you have to do is wait over a decade for your students and clients to get successful. And then there'll be a nice pool of talent to bring on your podcast. So that's what, I, what I've learned. You're playing the long game. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. I didn't realize I was, but it turns out I am. Yeah. Uh, so do you find that, you know, students are really interested in coming on the podcast or to some of them, you kind of have to bring out their shell a little bit. Everybody, everybody said yes so far. Sometimes there will be people who don't feel like they've done enough. And I always find that interesting because I like to sometimes just talk to somebody I know is a rising star, someone who isn't, hasn't gotten their first gig yet, but I I believe that their method or their work ethic or their talent is strong enough to bring them on the show and, and talk about that, that method. And they'll be like, no, no, no. When I get, when I sell my first thing, no, no, no. And, uh, and I, you know, that has to do with writers insecurities, you know, not sort of owning who they are and what they do well at the time. You really do have to kind of celebrate in the moment and, and, and just say, yeah, sure. I'll come on. I'll talk about what I know. I don't have my big break yet, but I can talk about where I'm at. And do you notice anything is, and I mean, this obviously doesn't have to be the case, but anything with gender is as far as, you know, do female writers tend to be a little bit more hesitant or I just something we've noticed at Emerson in our community is that our sets tend to be heavily male dominated just because female students are a little more hesitant to go out for sets and they tend to kind of underestimate their abilities. And then it comes down to this male DP just has more experience on his resume because he's gone out for more and, you know, and and that's why he gets hired. So I'm wondering if you've experienced that with your writers as well. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. It is absolutely getting better where I'm seeing more women of your generation just saying, yeah, sure. Okay. Right. But I have seen over the years, you know, I hate to generalize, but the, the more women than men saying, no, 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 I have to get it perfect. I have to get it right. I can't send it out yet. Or I don't have enough experience. I'm not ready. A lot of that. And I'll say, you know, while you're apologizing, while you're making it perfect, some dude is getting your job. You know, some dude who is just like, yeah, I'm cool. I'm great. I'm talented. Yeah. Hire me. I've seen it. 
happen. And so I do think, again, that, that things are changing with your generation, that there seems to be more of a why not attitude. And I love that. And, and so, yes, so hopefully we'll get to a place where women aren't apologizing first, that they're just jumping in the pool. Yeah, that also reminds me because you had the creators of the Writers Lab a couple of weeks ago, and their mm-hmm. focus is all on older women writers, older female writers. I think I think you're right. I think we are starting to see change slowly, and I yeah, that's yeah, I think and it's, it's exciting. Yes, and and the first thing it, it is scary to say yes. It is scary to say yes, but if somebody's asking you to do something, that means they believe you're qualified to do it. So. If your hesitancy is, oh, I don't think I'm ready. Well, they think you're ready. So do that. Oh, yeah. I, I love that attitude. Just, you know, I like that because, yeah, you know, I think we tend to underestimate ourselves, but even just kind of rethinking that question as they're, they're doing the asking. So therefore, you must have something is, exactly. is a really powerful place to come from, especially as a writer. Because I think you're right. It's so vulnerable. You know, you're creating yeah. these characters that are part of you. And one thing I, I, I've learned from my clients and students and what I've learned also from doing what I do, you never stop learning on the job. You're always learning on the job. And, and that's good. You know, if you feel like you, you know, you're on the job and it's like, I have nothing more to learn, you probably still do. <laughs> so everyone has to know that. They all think that somebody else knows exactly what they're doing. No, even your showrunner is still learning on the job. So you have to know that going in that it's, yeah, you've got to keep your eyes and ears open. You've, you, you know, it, it's a process. It's not something where you have to be perfect on day one. Yes. And so we can kind of transition now to talking about our favorite female characters in, uh. in both film <laughs> and television. There are so many. Once I started to actually think about it, it became so much harder to come up with the top five. I know. I know. <laughs> Yeah, you you really like today you you sent me that little note about that and I had a 2-hour class and then I had a podcast and I'm like damn it how am I going to think about like you know and I actually cat the way that I ended up doing it was instead of going like here I think these are the top 5 characters like from a a writing teacher perspective I actually did it from a really personal perspective And I did it decade by decade because when you're old, like a me, you can do that, you know? So I did like the, the, the characters I responded to the most from like the seventies to now. So I know that's the, you know, going to take us back in time, but I know you deal with ancient history a lot. So I think I I love that. I think that's (laughs) great because you got to think even just the way women are shown on screen has changed every decade. So you almost can't compare because they are so different in some ways. Yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) So why don't you start us off? What was what's in your top five? I'm going in order. So the first one, so I'm going to go back to my childhood. Okay. And this is the seventies. I was a little kid and my mom and my grandma, they, they all lived with, I lived with two grandmothers and my mother, and we would all watch this show called Rhoda. 
So Rhoda was Mary Tyler Moore's best friend. And you'll hear a lot about Mary Tyler Moore as a character because she was a single woman working. It was a big deal to have a show about a single woman working. She was great, but we loved her best friend, Rhoda, because Rhoda was down to earth and smart and New York and funny. And so Rhoda would have these very flawed adventures every week. She seemed really down to earth. Everybody, my mom and my grandmothers would crack up. I was little, but I was laughing too, maybe because they were, and maybe because Rhoda looked just like my mom. But, you know, women in the seventies were, you know, young women like my mother in the seventies, they were trying to come off as like, like your podcast said, they were trying to be natural. They were trying to be themselves and get, and move forward in a world that had a lot of closed doors to them. And Rhoda was doing the same thing and she got married and she got divorced and she was very messy and funny. And so Rhoda in the seventies, that's my (laughs) first, my first female character to check out. I, I love that. I've actually, I've, I've heard of obviously Mary Tyler Moore, but I hadn't heard of Rhoda. And I think it's interesting because I've been thinking about the characters I chose and even just some of the characteristics are very similar. You know, this idea of having messy, flawed female mm-hmm. characters who kind of break the rules. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I think that's something that we still even see today. Um, so because you have such a great order for the decades, I'm going to have you get on to the second one. All right. Well, we're going to move into the eighties now. Okay. <laughs> and this is a movie by James L. Brooks. And actually what was so funny was when I looked up Rhoda, I found out James L. Brooks actually developed that show. I had no idea. So broadcast around 1987 was when it came out. This is a character. Her name is Jane Craig, and she was played by Holly Hunter. Broadcast News in general is a great movie. I really recommend it. But what I loved about Jane Craig, besides the fact that she was very short and loud and controlling and mostly right, (laughs) is that she has a really famous scene where she sets a timer and makes this appointment to cry. So she's got a really high powered job. She loves her work, but she needs that moment to be vulnerable. So she sets a timer and she, she has that moment, she cries, and then she gets on with her life. And, uh, and that had a lot of impact on me as a, you know, as a young person watching that movie. Also, again, she just, she just went for, and she wasn't perfect at it. And she wasn't cool in control. She was, again, messy in control. But, but it was so entertaining to watch her. So yeah, Jane Craig played by Holly Hunter, broadcast news, 1987. Now I, I have to see, I have to add these to my list now yeah. because that sounds so, I love that. And I also think, I, I feel like that character sounds a lot like me in some ways, you know, that sense of being very scheduled and things. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, these are great suggestions. <laughs> see, see, you're, you're so worried about age and everything. You're just passing on some, some great advice and some great characters to look out for. <laughs> there are some advantages to when you get older going, well, okay, what have I learned? You know, what can I share instead of just always trying to, to hide that? Okay. So who's, who's next? All right. Well, the next person we're going into the nineties and I picked Elaine in Seinfeld. Okay, played by Julia Louise Dreyfus. Elaine was awesome. I think 
maybe the best female character ever on TV. And why, besides the fact that she had really great hair, why she she wasn't trying to, she wasn't trying to get married. She wasn't trying to find the perfect relationship. She was hanging out with her guy friends. She had a job. She had sex with, you know, people that that she didn't have relationships with from time to time. Didn't make a big deal of it. She was just as annoyed at certain small things as the guys were. She was a a single woman in the 90s who I think represented how kind of we all felt at the time was which was, you know, somebody who just wanted to get through her damn day, you know, and didn't really put up with fools very much, you know, and had a bunch of, like I said, bunch of guy friends and, and just was part of the sitcom. She wasn't like the elixir. She wasn't the thing that the boys were trying to get. And it wasn't all about her trying to get married. So, so I loved Elaine and Seinfeld. And talk about another kind of messy character. I mean, oh, I, these are all messy. There is a definite consistency to all these bad characters I picked. Yes, they're all just train wrecks. She embodies contained chaos. You know? Yes. <laughs> you yes. look at like, the episode, The Sponge. I don't know if you remember the episode with The Sponge. I, you know, yes. Yes, I, re- I remember it. You know, at the risk of getting too personal, I feel like I lived it. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and, but it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm making these questionable moral choices. It was who is worthy of being in bed with me. I really like that. It was just like, God, these things are going to run out. You know, I, I guess I've got to be picky. You know, is that guy sponge worthy? I just thought that was a great episode. <laughs> yeah. I also think that kind of turns the table on what we typically see with, you know, men being very selective in TV of who they sleep with and kind of trying to seduce the girl. And, and here it's the opposite. Here's a, here's a woman who she's going to be the one that's picky. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, years later she would go on to play Veep. And I think yes. that if Elaine you know, kept running out of control and selfishly, she would have ended up actually being the character in Veep. So I liked her in the nineties, by the time she becomes Veep later (laughs) on, well, you know, a lot of questionable moral choices. So now that we're, we're kind of in the same time period, I'll start sharing some of mine. Uh, so, So my, my first one is, is more of a literary sense. So I am a huge fan of Pride and Prejudice. I love Jane Austen. I've read most of her books. And so one of my favorite films is Pride and Prejudice, the 2005 version. Uh, it's directed by Joe Wright and it's uh, written by Deborah Mogak. I could be oh. pronouncing that wrong, but it's such an incredible film. It was actually the first time that I'd ever seen a film before reading the book, which I never do. Uh, but I was just, it was like a rainy night and you know, Netflix. And I was like, oh, this looks like a romance. I like romance films. And I watched it. And then I read the book and fell in love. And so Elizabeth Bennett is one of my top, my top characters, you know, again, very unapologetic. She's not going to settle and she's not going to be told to settle. And she has this such characteristic wit and she's not afraid to speak her mind. And I think especially when you put that in the context of, you know, Victorian England, that was a rarity. And to even have been written during that time, I think is so incredible. But she really is this character that you don't, you don't mess with her because, you know, she's not, you know, strong in the sense that she's a Katniss Everdeen or something with that kind of physical strength, but she has such 
you know, just even combating people with her intelligence and her wit. And I just always really looked up to that in her, in her character. So she, she is my, one of my top five characters. There have been so many versions of Pride and Prejudice. Isn't Bridget Jones also a contemporary version of Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. So actually, I'm in a writing adaptation class right now at Emerson's. We've been talking a lot about different adaptations and we have a textbook actually on it. And one of the things they mentioned is Bridget Jones and how, yes, it's an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, but in other ways, it's also not because uh, for one thing, it comes from a book. So it would be kind of an adaptation of an adaptation. Uh And then even just looking at the basic framework of, you know, because you know, Colin Firth, who obviously was Mr. Darcy in the BBC version, comes back and he's playing this Darcy character. But when you actually look at it, it's a structure that's very familiar in most, you know, romances or romantic comedies. So really the only thing that really harkens back to Pride and Prejudice is them kind of bringing in Colin Firth and the names of things to kind of create more of an allusion to the original rather than kind of a straight adaptation, which I thought was really interesting. That is. So have you seen Bridget Jones? Yes. Okay. So you you agree. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So um, there's that triangle that we're talking about, but yeah, it's a common triangle, like you said. Yeah. I actually, so it's kind of sacrilegious. I've never seen the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice and everybody, everybody says it's, it's the better version that it's more faithful to the book. And I haven't seen it. I haven't, haven't gotten there. Don't be mad. I haven't seen it either. I'll tell you what, well, we'll both do our homework on it sometime or or yes. we just will never talk about this again. <laughs> right. yeah. So I'll, I'll go to my number two. My second is Olivia Pope. So I'm a huge Shonda Rhimes fan. And mm-hmm. I started watching Scandal when I was, I was pretty young, probably in, in middle school. So definitely some mature themes. But once again, unapologetic, that's like my favorite type of female character. And, you know, even just looking at her catchphrase, it's handled. She just exuded power and respect and you were not going to mess with her. And I just, I loved that. And I always loved her, like her speeches, because when you gave her that moment to speak, she was going to use that moment to speak (laughs) and everybody was going to listen. And I always just loved that. And, you know, and she still is this, you know, emotionally complex character who has her own needs and desires, but you know, even though she has his crazy life as this fixer and is dealing with all these different scandals and things, at the end of the day, she was a woman who just wanted to eat popcorn on her couch and drink a glass of red wine. So I, I think even just grounding her in that way, you know, it's just in a still relatable way, but at the same time, kind of in this world of dirty politics. Sure. Absolutely. My, my brother, Oh, sorry. Let me get out of email. That's the worst thing that's on, on a podcast is to hear like my, my brother and his wife always call me like, okay, Olivia Pope. Right. And I thought it was because I was so pretty and in control. And it turns out it's because she does some weird thing with her mouth all the time. That they're like, see, you did that thing. You made that oh weird expression, God. that Olivia Pope thing. So uh, darn it. I just want, I just thought I was just like her. Not at all. Turns out not at all. I just do a weird mouth thing. <laughs> it means you're like Carrie Washington in some way, you know, you're I, imitating part of her acting style. <laughs> I, you know, I'll, I'll take it, man. I'll take it. But yeah, she's a really cool character. Absolutely. Yeah. I love all of Shonda Rhimes characters, you know, even looking at, you know, Annalise and how to get it with murder and, and Meredith and Grey's Anatomy. I mean, I, I wasn't ever really a huge fan of Grey's Anatomy. I had, a, I had friends who wanted to be doctors. And so in middle school, we would just watch marathons of Grey's Anatomy so they can talk about the surgeries taking place. But even still, you have to appreciate just how these female characters are portrayed. And and one of my favorite quotes, or, you know, I'm going to 
paraphrase this quote from Shonda Rhimes is that she doesn't believe in the quote, you know, a strong female character because in her opinion, all female characters should be strong, which I thought was, was really interesting because I think it is a, a phrase we see used often, especially in kind of how we advertise stories. Oh, it's a strong female lead. And Shonda Rhimes kind of puts back, okay, but all women are. So what does that even really mean to a point? Because you wouldn't say a strong male lead or a strong male character. Very, very true. I think the thing that we've been fighting for so long is not one kind of care of female character on screen, just tons of them, you know, like I, I want there to be so many female driven movies that you that like a quarter of them are bad. Just like there are so many <laughs> male-driven movies, you're like, oh, what, that piece of crap, you know? But wouldn't it be nice if there were just so many that like, oh yeah, that one don't watch, but do watch that one because you have a plethora of them. And that just means that, yeah, you just happen to put a woman in the lead. It doesn't have to be a kind of woman. And this idea of the strong woman, I totally agree. You know, what is strength, right? Somebody who, again, is just trying to get through her day, right? At work or just making, you know, breakfast or just talking to her partner, that person is strong in the fact that they're trying to accomplish a goal. How they accomplish it does not have to be with Olivia Pope kind of monologues, right? It could be with humor. It could be with, you know, making a smart choice over a dumb choice or muscling through a dumb choice. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, it comes down to the strategy that the character uses. I think yeah. is a way to put that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I guess I'll just give my third one and then yeah, go we can it. go back and forth for our top two or our final two. Our final going two. For the absolutely. chronological uh, sense. So <laughs> my next one is, is not necessarily one character. It's kind of an ensemble of characters, mm -hmm. um, but I really love the show Big Little Lies. <laughs> I, I, I love mysteries. I love dramas and once again like women making really questionable choices and so that whole ensemble I really enjoyed and I think maybe my favorite has to be Madeline which is Reese, Reese Witherspoon's character but just because you know they're not necessarily like the most likable of women but you have to respect them and you have to just admire you know these steps they take and they're the way they look at things because it, sometimes it's so crazy and other times you're like, they're exactly right. <laughs> you know, you have to agree with them. So I think even then, like, I love really morally twisted characters who as, as much as they've done things that are wrong, you can still love them for it. Yes, I agree. Have you seen Little Fires Everywhere? I haven't. So I, I want to read the book and I know you've had, as her name, Liz Tigler. Liz, Liz Tigler. That's right. Yeah. yeah. She's been, she, she was, I was lucky enough to have her as a student at a certain point. She was already working in TV, but she went on to be the showrunner for Little Fires Everywhere. But the reason I'm bringing it up is if you like Big Little Lies and you like Olivia Pope, put them together and you get Little Fires Everywhere, right? <laughs> because Carrie Washington is the is one of the leads in Little Fires Everywhere. And I have to say, Kat, I think the storytelling is a little more involved because there's there's constant turning of mystery, whereas Little Fires, I'm sorry, Big Little Lies, like it really all boils down to one thing, you know? 
And so there's a lot of layers. So see that and then let me know which one you like more because I'm, I I'm will fires myself. <laughs> I, I want to get the book because I, again, I really like to read things. And I actually, when I saw Big Little Lies, didn't realize it was a series first. And so mm -hmm. I actually haven't gotten a chance to read that, but I just bought the book Nine Perfect Strangers. Uh, it's that new one that just came out on Hulu. That's also by the same author of Big Little Lies. Um, so I'm, I'm ready to read that one, but I, I also do want to read Little Fires Everywhere because it did look really, really good. I think it, I think it, it also like the only danger sometimes with big little lies and with nine perfect strangers is a certain emphasis on, on class. Like it's on mm -hmm. a certain, a certain class, a certain moneyed class that yeah, I just, just, yeah. Sometimes I need a little bit of a palate cleanse from, mm -hmm. you know, from all that, but sometimes it's also fun to sort of, you know, indulge in these privileged, selfish people as well. Yeah, I think the part that I really like about it is that it's almost making fun of of this, you know, mm -hmm. elitist class and they're having these parties where they're dressing up a certain way. I mean, even looking at the scene where the murder happens, they're all dressed up in different costumes and things. Oh. But I do agree. I think it can be hard to kind of relate to that after a while because if, you know, if you're not unless you're living in billion dollar mansions in Malibu. You you're know? right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's it's Yes. Well, I guess we could go on and on and on, but tell me about like, when you see little fires, let me know what you think. Okay. I will. Yes. Okay, cool. <laughs> so, oh, so are we, are we jumping to, is it, should I jump into the two thousands now? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm going to go with, guess what? A messy character. What a shock. <laughs> All right. So in the, around when this came out, around 2009, maybe a little bit before that, was Mad Men, right? And everybody was obsessed with Don Draper. And, and they were obsessed with Don Draper because he was so compartmentalized, right? He was great at his job, but secretly he was having affairs and he might have been a low-level alcoholic and he had a past and all this stuff. But I found even more interesting was the character of Nurse Jackie. Nurse Jackie was a half hour dramedy that came out at the same time. Edie Falco played Nurse Jackie. Nurse Jackie was great at her job as a nurse. And she also happened to be a, a uh, drug addict. So there's a problem there if you're living in the world of drugs for your job, right? So every week it's this balance of those two. And I always find that this sort of marriage of flaw and skill is very interesting in any character, particularly for her because now we've got a woman here in her 40s. And I think what happens when you do get into your 40s is you realize that no one truly has it together and that everybody has secrets. And that was what was so interesting to me about this character. And, and they don't romanticize her, her drug problem either, especially as the seasons go on. Edie Falco actually insisted that they don't. So it gets, it gets uglier. It gets messier. And there's a lot of facets to her life. She has, she has uh, a child. She has a marriage. She has there's just a, a lot of things in play, which I think is also the case for a lot of women in their 40s who might, it might be sort of messier than people think, except for me, of course. <laughs> right? Perfect. You got it. Yeah. Everything together. Exactly. Exactly. So, <laughs> and so Nurse Jackie 
in the 2000s, around 2009, by Edie Falco, who is the the actor. Yes, lots of lots of balls in the air. It seems absolutely, absolutely. Check it out. Tell me what you think if you ever. I see will. It. Yes, okay. you're, you're giving me great recommendations. I feel like sometimes I I go to Hulu or, or Netflix and I'm like, oh, what do I want to watch? And it's so hard. And then I'm just, there's so many things to watch. And I think you know, especially now with streaming, there's there are so many characters to get to know. And then you're also going back and looking at you know past characters that have already existed and have already you know entertained. And so it's it's like there's a whole it really is a whole wide world to explore in- right. <laughs> right that's true and but you know what what great homework right yes like, oh, I have to watch tv <laughs> I have to watch a movie like oh there's so much content like what what world do we live in that we can we can immerse ourselves in any kind of story on any kind of flat platform at any time that we want you know that's really really neat so and we can have discussions like this it's like how I find a lot of people connect is over their favorite show. I mean, I bet people fall in love because they, they binge watch the same thing, you know? So I don't know. I think it's neat. (laughs) I do too. No. Yeah, definitely. So my next one is Jin Erso. So she is from Rogue One. So it is a star Wars film, but it's a film. It's a star Wars film that kind of fits into the Star Wars universe, but it's it's not part of any of the main trilogies. So it was kind of this side story that they created to kind of bridge the gap between two of the episodes. And so Jen Erso's character, we meet her and, and she's, you know, we meet her as a child for one. And we kind of see this traumatic experience happen to her. And then she kind of is brought to a different world. And then when we meet her as an adult, she's in this intergalactic prison and she's a prisoner. And so we we come to meet her and she's very much not necessarily black or white. I mean, you're looking at the Star Wars universe, which is is very black and white, you know, in terms of the bad guys and the good guys. And she sits on that line between where she's not willing to give her allegiance to either side, which I think is really interesting. And then, you know, as, as it goes on and we kind of see her rally for this cause. And I don't know, I think for her character, I left that movie feeling like I really got to connect with her. And I think, you know, for me, I mean, I enjoy Star Wars and I know Ray and Leia and there are all these other really great female characters, but there was something about Jen Erso where I felt like I could really connect to her. You know, there, here is this very vulnerable woman who was just putting on her best face and, do, and doing what she could. That was a story that, especially the ending, I don't know if you've seen the film. Don't give it away. Don't tell me because... <laughs> All every Star Wars fan I know loves Rogue One. So it really, really must be doing its job. And they do tend to be like the the female Star Wars fans are the ones they always mention this one. So it must be a great character. I'm going to go see it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like it gets so little attention sometimes because, you know, of all the hype of, you know, you had the new trilogy and everything was happening and, you know, Last Jedi and everything. But Rogue One kind of got shuffled away. But it's one of those kind of non-main movies, I should say, that really does a great job at telling a fully rounded story within its own confines. Because even though it is related to the, you know, the overarching story of the universe, it really does have its own central story with this really endearing ensemble of characters. And it just, you know, it, it 
wouldn't be like a normal Star Wars movie in some aspects. I think you could you could see it without having seen any of the other Star Wars movies and you'd be able to understand it and relate to it and really enjoy it. So for that reason, I also really enjoy it. So if you want to see a really terribly written female character in the Star Wars world, what were those, those movies that had Natalie Portman as the princess? <laughs> The prequels. <laughs> oh my God, those were bad. Oh my God, those were so terrible. And Natalie Portman was so just wasted, not not drunk, just, just wasted <laughs> yes. as an actor, you know? Like, oh, it was awful. And talk about just deifying. Like, let's, let's dress her up and have her say like regal things. Like, this is very important. And let me tell you why. It was like, I, I was so frustrating. <laughs> I'm sorry, Star Wars people who really love her. I'm sorry. <laughs> Nothing against the actors, the character. Sorry. I come from a family that really loves Star Wars. We, we have a very Disney family. We just kind of grew up with that. And so like my parents are very into Star Wars. And so even like in my house, I have to be careful about what I say because... <laughs> Because growing up, I actually, I actually hated Star Wars when I was growing up. Not for oh, any real dang. reason. I had never, I think I had only ever seen like the on TV. Yeah, yeah that'll do it. They play them a lot. And so yeah. I think they'd always kind of been put on when I was younger. And I was like, this, this isn't it. I don't know yeah. what the big hype is. And it went for so long. I remember I went to Disney and they had the Jedi Academy and I was just on the cusp of the age. And my dad, and my brother were like, you have to go do it. And I was like, so I'm not going to go in 90 degree heat and wear a cloak and, and, you know, play with lightsabers. I wasn't into that. And so they were, they were so disappointed that I didn't, but then I did have nieces that went into the Jedi experience. So uh-huh. they got there eventually, but yeah, I think especially coming from a place of not really ever really enjoying star Wars rogue one was kind of what brought me into the universe mm-hmm. and made me reconsider how I, how I viewed it all just, just because of this one movie and this one character. Did, did you ever so those terrible prequels aside, so did you end up seeing like the first Star Wars that ever came out and battle, and the second one and all that? I've seen them, but I've only seen like, I can only remember bits and pieces. I don't think right. since I've been older that I've actually gone back and watched each one in order. Yeah. I probably should. Well, when you're talking about like female characters, so I was 11 when Star Wars came out, okay? My father would take me to any movie he wanted to go to. So he wants to see Star Wars. He takes me over there. And that movie rocked my world, rocked my world. And I think, and this is the one, you know, with Luke and Leia and all that, the very first one. And part of it was because the portrayal of the princess Leia, right? Getting rescued and saying things like, now, this is a hell of a rescue, you know, or being the person that started the whole adventure, even like just even giving her a smart ass line was so new for a young female moviegoer like me, 11 years old. I'm like, she's the coolest character ever. And all she did was, you know, say a couple smart things that we're used to, you know, now with female characters. But it definitely, like I said, it rocked my world just having like one smart, funny princess. Yeah, but I I think that even just speaks to the impact of representation and and female characters on screen. And even just looking at how just animation and how Disney princesses and things like that have changed. I don't know if you saw the most recent film, Raya and the Last Dragon, 
but I absolutely loved it. I thought it, you know, once again, I am also a huge fan of the screenwriter. She's an Emerson alum, Adele Lim. And so, yeah. And I saw that film. I cried at the end. I remember thinking it was so well done, but even just looking at, you know, how animation has evolved and how it shows female characters, you know, looking back at the very beginnings of, you know, Cinderella and Snow White. And just even there, you know, there's this long history and heritage of Disney of having this certain type of character and kind of seeing how in the 21st century and as things are changing for the better, we're starting to see these molds be broken. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been really fun to watch, you know, especially having, having kids of my own, you know, where there's an assumption for them that, you know, their princess is gotta have some, some meat on her bones or forget it, you know, you know, literally and figuratively. And I, and I, I really like that. All right. Do you want to give your, your last one? Sure. So I have, I have a last one, but I also have like a little tiny addendum. Okay. Okay. So my, my last one is these are two characters together, Amy and Molly from book smart in 2019. So now we're finally up to the teens in the two thousands, Amy and Molly are the leads in book smart. And I loved this movie. And the reason that I love those characters and this movie is because they looked and acted like the kids that were coming to visit my house every day, that were my kids' friends or my kids themselves. And I thought, God, finally, somebody's doing a high school movie that isn't just replicating John Hughes movies, which might've been when they grew up, you know? Someone's doing a high school movie about high school kids now who are smart, they're self-aware, um, and confident. And, uh, and I just really loved these characters. They would have been considered outcasts and nerds in my days or in the movies made in my days. And instead they were like, yeah, okay. People. Hello. You know, they, they were, they were large and in charge. And I really loved that. Yeah. I think it even speaks to this kind of romanticized version of high school that we often get in films. I mean, John Hughes is, is John Hughes and, and, and that that's his thing. And, and you know, but I think in, especially today, we still have TV shows and things, you know, looking at certain and not to hit on any specific show, but looking at things like for little liars, where you know, the actresses were much older too. And, and, you know, getting into things like sex and murder and things. And I I remember, I mean, part of it is the premise of the show, but even just looking at, I think I was talking to my friends and we didn't party that much in high school. Like I come from a very small town in Massachusetts. When we see parties on TV, we're like, didn't happen in our town, you know? Yeah. And it's so interesting to just see how, you know, and looking at even things like Gossip Girl and they're making that, they have the new version of that now. And again, it kind of goes back to that big little lies aspect of the elite. And this is a private school. And we're looking into these lives, these very, very wealthy teenagers, which also kind of says something about who we choose to focus on in that regard too. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It really does. And also, are we, by always bringing out maybe the drugs and sex angle, are you also romanticizing it? You know, and you know, kids in high school. Okay. So some may do drugs and some may have sex, but they also, you know, they're, they're worried about their futures. They want to go to school or they want to pass a test or maybe they want to get into a party, you know, but it's not, 
it's it's not this romantic version of it. And uh, and again, that's why I liked Booksmart so much because of that. So Amy and Molly, for sure, I thought they were great characters and great for like setting a trend for a different kind of high school movie. And then I just want to say a little extra thing for going ahead because so my list ends in 2019 going ahead. I just feel like pretty much any character that Gene Smart picks and any character that Regina King picks, those are going to be the characters that shine. They seem to really gravitate toward interesting material and interesting varied women. And I could probably just watch like a Gene Smart or Regina King marathon and be happy going forward. So I just wanted to throw that in. It's kind of a sixth thing, but like (laughs) that, if you saw, you wouldn't have seen this, but Watchmen was a really interesting TV show. And my obsession with Gene Smart and Regina King starts there. So I have no idea what the show is actually about, but I loved watching (laughs) them. So I'm throwing them in as a little sixth there. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely looking at, you know, the voice of directors and filmmakers. And I think it's true. You look at certain filmmakers and you just come to appreciate them for the types of characters that they do bring to life. And Mm -hmm. so I I think it is something to consider as well, you know, highlighting not only the characters themselves, but also the women who are are championing them and, and bringing them to the light and bringing them forward. Exactly. Exactly. So I snuck another one in. So what about you? So my top one, it's also an older show. It's no longer, it's no longer on air. This is another one that was really personal was Leslie Nope, Parks and Recreation. Uh, I always, so I watched it from a very young age and my brother used to put it on with my, you know, my sister and my mom and we would just watch it. And a lot of the humor went over my head, but you know, I thought it was funny. And kind of like you said, you know, watching Rhoda, you had that sense of, oh, they're laughing. So I should be laughing. and It's funny. (laughs) And I, I always loved Leslie Nope and how chipper she was. And, and, you know, I think just looking back now that I'm older and she has this fierce optimism and, you know, nothing, you know, she has her moments and it's not that she's perfect and she's, you know, impenetrable. She has her moments, but at the same time, she always brings such life and enthusiasm to everything she does. And I always just really related to her in that, you know, she runs for office and not everyone likes her. Not She's not not the most popular. She's not the favorite. She has to really work hard to be seen and show her passion for things. And that's something that I always related to, you know, running for student government in high school and, and not getting elected and being like, oh, but I have such ideas and oh, I have such, you know, things I want to do. And, and so I think there's even that part just with Leslie Nope, but also in how women are portrayed in general of just the sense of, you know, women aren't necessarily the favorite of things, but they're the ones that rally and that, you know, have the enthusiasm and have the passion to get things done, even if it's not always recognized. I, I so uh, agree with you. And I was just thinking that Leslie, Nope, the reason it was, it was so fun to see a positive portrayal of that, like over eager, person because that person has been portrayed negatively before in really entertaining ways. But like the negative portrayal of that is Tracy Flick in election. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. It's a great movie. Mm -hmm. Really, really. And that was played by Reese Witherspoon and Tracy Flick was the, I know everything and I'm going to be the student president and all this stuff. 
but so of course you know there's a, a negative portrayal of her because she's annoying to the male lead character i i get it it works in the movie but from her point of view she's the only person who can get shit done excuse my language right <laughs> and that becomes leslie nope and that the fact that we're actually like celebrating her and appreciating her says maybe that negative portrayal of the woman who's just trying to get stuff done. Maybe we're, we're, we're done always sort of discounting that. So, so yeah, I'm with you. I love that character. She was wonderful. I, I said that I miss, I miss characters, you know, I almost wish shows could come back just for even like one season or one episode, you know, <laughs> just, just, just to see. <laughs> Well, you know what? Sometimes I love the fact that they're kind of locked in time. They haven't had a chance to, I don't know, to, for us to get sick of them. They just stay in their little universe and we can go back to them and go, oh, you know, <laughs> I, I want to go back to this favorite moment where you made this interesting choice. You know? Yeah, I do that with all these shows. I'm right now, I'm, I've been going back and watching the show Bones. We just put it on and we kind of just get to, slip into that world. And it is, it's like coming home. It's a little bit of a comfort thing. Sure. I think a lot of people that might be, oh, I don't know, with Ted Lasso, they're talking about how like, you know, the trend right now is feel good stuff because we've been through so much with the dark and the edgy and all that. I kind of still can't get enough of dark and edgy. I don't know what my problem is, but there is something to be said about just something that, that comes out the other side in a positive way like things like Schitt's Creek or Ted Lasso they can go through a lot of negative stuff but then they get to sort of a positive place and you end up feeling like you made a positive choice even though you didn't you were just watching tv <laughs> uh, that actually reminds me something else something else that Shonda Rhimes had mentioned in that, you know, she created scandal at a time when go the government was generally trusted and things. So she kind of compared it to the West Wing where things were kind of going not so great in the government. And so the West Wing came and it was this, you know, feel good in some ways, but the sense of more of a positive look at the government. And here is a president that you wanted to root for and you could trust. And then she said, well, you know, when Obama came, it was something that like you do the opposite. Now you can really explore that dark underbelly of politics because people aren't really worried about their own government doing it. So now you can really get into that nitty gritty. That is interesting. Yeah. Right. Because if it's just a reflection of what really is going on, it gets boring or seems like promotion. Yeah. I, I could definitely see that. Shonda Rhimes should be on the show. Don't you think? Cats? I would love that. Shonda. <laughs> Shonda I don't know how to make that happen, but please. Cat is amazing and she is she is the hope for the future. Come on, Shonda. <laughs> Come on, her show. I'll never ask her to be on my show because she'll be like, no, not you, but Kat. Yes. Oh, well, thank you. I guess even just looking at that too, as like a last thing, I've already seen people writing pandemic scripts and, and writing stories that take place in the pandemic. And I know personally for me, I'm not ready for that. I, I look at it as we're still in this. The pandemic is not over. You know, we've moved into a better place, but it, it's still it's still going on. And so I wonder how you feel about that. If you've seen any any pandemic scripts and, and kind of what your thoughts are. My feeling is by the time something is actually produced. It, it'll be ready for us to reflect on it. 
So even though we might have COVID fatigue right now, if there was an experience that somebody wrote about that's, that really affected them, it will still work by the time it's made. Like people shouldn't shut down projects just because like, oh, I don't want anything with it's, you know, okay, maybe audiences aren't ready for that yet, but by the time it's made, the audiences will be over it. And I guess the reason I'm saying that is like, I remember post 9-11, everybody was like, nothing with explosions, nothing with terrorists, nothing with war, nothing with Middle East. And it was like, you know, five years later, we're seeing everything with explosions. And, and if, if everyone had listened to that, then there wouldn't, there were some really good movies that came out. Tell whatever story you choose to tell that you're moved to tell. Don't chase trends. It's interesting to talk about like what people are responding to right now, but as a writer, don't chase trends. If you're, if you're trying to figure out what to write next, just write what you want to write next. That's my, that's my spiel. That, <laughs> no, that all makes sense. <laughs> yes. I love that. I think that makes, that makes so much sense. That's a really great way to kind of finish off what we were talking about. So kind of going forward, if people want to take your classes, listen to your podcast, consult with you, whatever it may be, they just want to get to know you. I can vouch that you're incredible and so much fun to work with. How should they, how should they find you or, or kind of pursue that? Sure. I have a, a website. It's kind of catch all for everything on the page.tv. Go there and uh, you will find links to all the classes and everything that you just talked about. If you want to just listen to the podcast, go to on the page on wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify or um, Apple music. And then all my social media handles are also at on the page. Okay. So I would love to, <laughs> to see you in class or elsewhere. Nice, nice and easy. Can't forget that. <laughs> so thank you so much for being here. And to everybody else, have a great week. And remember to be natural.